You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. So Hosea chapter 6, as we've been working our way through uh, this prophetic book, the beginning of the Minor Prophets, Hosea who is speaking to the northern tribes. This is the time after uh, Israel has split into two nations, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has been spiraling out of control, if you will, about spiritual idolatry that finds themselves with Hosea here now as an ambassador of the Lord thundering at them that they would repent before it is too late. And so from chapter 4, really to the end, we come uh, to Hosea's message from the Lord. So hear these words from chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgments go forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. And we'll stop the reading there and resume the last half of verse 11 with chapter 7 next Sunday. So we come to Hosea chapter 6 and Hosea chapter 4, chapter 5. Hosea has been speaking to the nation. He has been calling them to repentance. He has been exposing their sin. And really with Hosea, it it is interesting to see that it it doesn't really let up as a book as you continue to read through it. Hosea is still coming with the words of the Lord, telling them repeatedly over and over and over again. Here in chapter 6, what separates it from the rest is that here his specific concern is half-hearted repentance. That that Israel is half-heartedly repentant. And that that is really not the response or really not the solution. It's not the response that God is after. God is not after really the the leftover devotion. Jesus died. You think about the ways in which Jesus came into this earth. He, He died not in order to save a part of us, a portion of us. He came in order to die and save us that he might renew us in body, mind, and soul. And so that really with our our whole being, we would worship God and we would love our neighbor as ourself. The beauty of the the flow of the Bible is that it doesn't speak of just a, a spiritual salvation. It speaks of a spiritual and an earthly and indeed the last 
part of the Bible speaks of this ultimate renewal of all things when heaven descends and you have this new heavens and this new earth and resurrected bodies and dwelling with the Lord forever and ever. And so as we come to Hosea chapter 6 and really uh, Hosea speaking to Israel about half-hearted repentance, I will see in the first three verses, it looks as if uh, Israel is speaking Israel is speaking to God, or really uh, there's a representative of Israel speaking to the people, calling them to repentance. In verses 4 through 6, there's another condemnation by the Lord for his people. In verses 7 through the beginning of verse 11, there is a, a further expounding of Israel's sin really shining the light on what kind of day-to-day life is like in Israel. And so verses 1 through 3, the beginning here, we run into, and there are several issues in this text of, of seeking to understand it, because with the first three verses, it's trying to figure out who actually is talking. Because the quotation marks that you see uh, in your service sheets there, those are not part of the original Hebrew. And then it becomes for us to ask, who is speaking? Is this Israel speaking or actually is this Hosea speaking to the people and telling them of the glories and the joy that there could be if they would repent? And actually several notable theologians take that approach, that this is Hosea speaking. Not one of those actually is John Calvin, and I feel slightly worried to disagree with him. But what I believe is actually happening here. And I think it's clear when you see the overall context of the passage is that this, what we have, is actually Israel speaking. And and, and Israel is speaking in a way in which they they want to return to the Lord, but they're doing it half-heartedly. And I think you can see this clearly if you look at verse 15 of the preceding chapter. The Lord says this, that I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly Seek me. And notice the way that God says, when they acknowledge their guilt. And if you read through the first three verses of chapter 6, it's awfully light on acknowledging guilt. There are far more positive statements here. Israel seems to be saying, well, yes, Lord, I am, I'm, I'm really sorry. I promise I will never do it again. If you've ever had children, you may have heard this before. I promise to never, ever do this again. And sometimes, I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but crossing your fingers means that that promise wasn't real. And so maybe the child is crossing his fingers behind his back or even in his mind. And that seems to be the picture of Israel saying, we're really sorry. Actually, what we don't want right now is all of the effects of this sin upon us. And they seem to even think of this as a very quick restoration in two days time. Uh, Really, this idea of two days is meant to be incredibly quickly for them, right? What they've done is they've seen what the Lord has done, and they said, well, we're sorry, please, you know, stop all of this that is coming. And so Israel, here in this section, they, they do speak of repentance. They speak of what seems to be resurrection and reconciliation, But we'll see as we go through this that their heart is actually not in it, and this has been a constant concern for the Lord and for Hosea. In verse 1, you see this idea of repentance. The Lord has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us down, but he will bind us up. 
And actually, when you see and, and read through Hosea, it does, it has this note that this sounds hopeful, that maybe the people are actually understanding. But as we'll see as we go throughout Hosea and the Lord will show that the Israel is actually in an incredibly sorry state, filled with evildoers, cities tracked with blood, priests who wait in roving gangs to murder people. And then Israel speaks, I think, figuratively of resurrection. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Exile in the Old Testament really is a picture of death. It's being separated from the Lord. What they're being threatened here with is a serious matter. Soon coming, they will be taken from their land and everything that they know. And they desire that the Lord would, would, would come and, and save them here in this, uh, in this instance. And what it seems as if throughout Hosea, what we've been seeing is what they're concerned with is not their holiness and their relationship to the Lord, but their loss of material things. In chapter 2, verse 5, if you remember all the way back then, they, they speak of the, the ways in which they go after all of these other lovers, really other economic powers, in order to gain wine, flax, water, oil, all of these things that symbolized wealth in ancient times. And so I think here, Israel is less concerned about living a holy life and more concerned about the fact that they're going to lose all of these material comforts. And that is what drives them. In verse 3, they, they speak of, of, rest, of reconciliation. And indeed, salvation is being reconciled to God and knowing God and being known by Him. And again, if you'll remember through Hosea, this has actually been God's complaint all the way back from chapter 2. Chapter 2, it'll be God, not them, who will accomplish uh, them being known by him. In chapter 4, verse 6, he complains that they do not know God. In verse 3 of chapter 5, God knows them deeply, and that is the problem. And it seems to be, even in this half-hearted repentance, there still seems to be a theology that they're bringing out that they present God as one who doesn't change, that his going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, just as these uh, weather, uh, just as the way they look outside and see the patterns of weather out there. They see this stability in this cycle of weather. Uh, they, they are reminded of a God who doesn't change. The slightly interesting thing with this is that the worship that they've been accused of is worshiping Baal, who is a storm god. And so it is interesting here that the, the words they use to describe Yahweh could very well be used for the god Baal. And so it's quite possible that here, even here, they're still, con, con, they're still merging these two things together. And so what they've forgotten Really, what the, what the people here are not seeming to recognize is that God is just. And they seem to be completely negligent of God's word because God has told them now that the consequences of their sin will be the coming exile. He constantly reminds them of this. And actually, as we go on, we'll see the Lord even reminding them of the fact that he's reminded them. In verse 15 of chapter 5, it, it really speaks of real repentance. But then that's God's desire. And in 6, verse 4, there seems to be this exasperation with his people. 
They acknowledge that God is merciful, yet they are awfully silent about their own sins and their own culpability in the matter. I think the way Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3, speaking to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, 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 excuse me, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent." It seems very similar to the state of Israel. They are, are so um, consumed with their economic prosperity, their, their power in the world stage. And yet they think little of holiness and of repentance. And so there are these strong words that the Lord has for his people in verses 4 through 6. And look at the way it starts. So Israel speaks to the Lord, it seems. And then in verse 4, the Lord responds, What shall I do with you? O Ephraim, what shall I do with you, O Judah? And again, if, if, if you've had children, there are times where you know you have reached the end. You are completely, exas- you have completely, you are exacerbated with your children, exasperated. I, one of these days, I'll get this word right. But you, 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 have, you have seen so much, you are at your wit's end and you just snap at them. And any of us who have been children have probably been there when we have tested the patience of our parents. But in the case of God, we have to remember that that he is not a a frustrated, angry parent, but rather he is holy. In him there is no frustration or, or sinful anger. When he is angry, it is righteous and it is good. It's Israel and Judah who are misunderstanding God as a whole as we've just seen with what what sin is. It's disobeying God's law, and it's not doing what God commands. The Westminster Shorter Catechism starts out earlier by saying, what do the scriptures principally teach? They, They teach what we need to believe about God, his character and who he is, but also what he requires of us. And both of these seem to be completely absent within Israel, and they seem to be falling away in Judah. And so God has a problem with his people in verse 4, but that moves to the plan that he's been executing in verse 5. And he says he hewns, he slays, and he illumines. And when we think of the prophets, sometimes we think of the fact that they speak about future events. But much of what the prophets do is they actually speak about present events. Not only do they foretell, but they forthtell. They act like lawyers in a courtroom with God as the judge. But here God says even more, they actually act like hammers in his hands. And that Israel and Judah are these stones. I have hewn them by the prophets. It's a stone masonry term. God here is chiseling at his people. But then he moves further, further. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. We can think of the ways in which the scripture speaks of God's word as a, as a two-edged sword. Maybe that doesn't mean as much today. Maybe we should think of the, the word of God as like a, a forged steel samurai sword. 
something that in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing would be extremely dangerous. Though to be fair, in the hands of someone who didn't know what they were doing, it'd be very and extremely dangerous as well. But nonetheless, it is meant to be seen as dangerous because it comes and it convicts or it brings judgment. As we'll remember back from chapter 5, verse 9, God says, I make known what is sure, that, that everything that the Lord says will come true. And for Israel's case, God has commanded, or God has said that he is bringing punishment. And it's as sure as if the sun will rise tomorrow. But many ways, I think of the, the word of the Lord is actually even more sure than the sun rising Tomorrow, because the one who makes the sun rise is the one who has said what he will do. Then he speaks also that his word goes forth, his judgment goes forth as the light. You can think of God's word as a light exposing the darkness. I think of the beauty of the way in which John's gospel starts, that Jesus is the light who has come into the darkness. But it also speaks of Jesus as the word coming forth. But here, God's word is a light. It exposes sin and confirms judgment. I mean, I think you just need to think of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the way in which the Lord told exactly what was going to happen. And then it was what blazing fire and brimstone that fell from heaven as judgment upon sin. And so it is here for Israel and for Judah. They are being warned repeatedly. And really, this theme is picked up in the New Testament. Jesus speaks quite simply about those outside of Jesus Christ, those who are not united to him by faith. The scriptures speak very pointedly about hell and about judgment and eternal separation from the Lord. Well, verse 6, God continues with there's a purpose for his people. He tells them simply through his prophet exactly what it is he desires. And when we think of this, it sounds as if God is, is belittling the sacrificial system. You remember this system in the Old Testament. It was a way to graphically portray to the people that they sinned, that there was a need for justice, but also that sin had a cost to it. I don't think any of us can really truly grasp what it would be like to take an animal that is alive, such as a sheep or a cow, and to lay our hands upon it. And then in that moment, as you do that, you are symbolically transferring your sins to it, and a priest comes up with a knife and slashes its throat, and blood flows out, and the animal dies there in your presence. I don't think we can fully understand that, but if you think about the ways in which the Israelites would see that day in and day out, the animals that would be slain for them in order that they may continue to live in the presence of God. But as we think about that system, what I think the Lord here is, is telling them when he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. What he's trying to remind them of them is that this is not magic. This is not a magical transfer that just by doing this, I, I naturally then forgive you. It, it needs to be appropriated by faith. The same thing happens today. Right? The Lord's Supper, baptism, there's nothing magic about them. Being baptized does not automatically make you a Christian. Partaking of the Lord's Supper doesn't automatically make you a Christian. Actually, Paul goes so far as to say is that taking the Lord's Supper without faith actually brings damnation. 
And the same thing would happen in the Old Testament system, that those who were coming up without true faith, that these animals who are being slaughtered in front of them would point to a time in which they themselves would be slaughtered, if you will. And so God desires of them that they would have steadfast love. This is a, a major theme, I think, throughout the prophets. This comes from the, a Hebrew word which not only can mean steadfast love, but also covenant loyalty or covenant faithfulness. That this is to be a characteristic of God's people. Yet for Israel at this time, it's the exact opposite, so much so that God desires that they have it. And right by the fact that God desires that they have it means that they don't. That they are unfaithful. That they break his covenant. That they have no love towards him. Right? So you just think of the, the same thing. You can think of sacrifices being offered without a love towards God. I mean, it's the same thing we see. You know, people who come to church on Christmas and Easter. As if that is what the Lord requires. What he requires is steadfast love, knowledge of God, understanding of God, a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And again, that's not to say that coming to church is not important. Reading your Bible is not important. Praying is not important. Of course, these things are important in terms of, of developing our relationship. And so God desires knowledge. And throughout Hosea, again, this is been a hammer, again, the pun I think is intended, this, that, to hammer this theme that Israel lacks knowledge. And it's come from several avenues. They've had bad leaders, bad priests, but also the people bear uh, individual guilt because God's made it plain to them who he is. And so I think what verses 4 through 6, when you put them next to verses 1 through 3, they, they help us rightly see why God is angry at his people. Why God seems to be exasperated with his people. That they seem to view him as if he's only mercy. They seem to take his long-suffering and almost use it against him. But I think it also, it gives us a picture of what truly it means for God to be long-suffering and patient with his people. Because we just think through the beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned, God could have wiped them out and he would have been just to do so. But yet constantly throughout the pages of Scripture, God is saving people and bringing them into relationship with him. And then they are seeming to, to spit upon his grace. And yet he is long-suffering And so he concludes, Hosea concludes this section in verses 7 through the beginning of 11, verse 11, really expanding upon the ways in which, really what characterizes Israel in a day-to-day -day basis. One other thing that, that jumps out at us, though, is verse 7, which is, it's a bit of a contested verse as to what it's referencing. I'll actually even say that as I was preparing this sermon, I read the verses one way, and by the end of my preparation, looked at it a different way. Because when you read it, it's easy to, to first look at this, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And read that as if what he's talking about is the first man, that this covenant that was established in the garden, Adam broke it, and Israel is, is acting identical to them in a sense of like father, like son. And, and I will say that's true, 
That, that, that statement is true, that there was a covenant made with man in the garden, that man broke and the effects of sin flowed out from that, and Israel is acting in the same manner. But I think what's referencing, what Hosea is referencing, and I think this, this helps us because it can be confusing, is Adam is also actually the name of a town. Adam's the name of a town. It's actually the, the crossing point on the Jordan. So you can think of when Israel is coming into the promised land, they, they actually come up around the other side of it, and then they cross over the Jordan River and come to Israel. Actually, in the place that they crossed, it, Adam is near that, and that's Joshua 3.16. That's the crossing point that Israel makes into the promised land. That's where the priests carry the ark and the water parts for Israel to walk across. I think that helps us see, because there are Three locations, then. If this is to be seen Adam as a place, then we have three locations given here, Adam, Gilead, and Shechem. And again, if you were actually to look at a map and you were to take Adam as that crossing point, if you were to go over uh, to the, I'm trying to think here, west or east, but if you were to go over away from Jerusalem, you would end up in in Gilead. And if you were to go the other way towards Jerusalem, you would end up at Shechem. So they all seem to be on the same approximate longitudinal line. That to me is just, that's an interesting thing to note that these are locations that are given. And also all three of these locations, Hosea seems to be speaking of events that were probably known to them that we don't have a lot of information about. But I think what Hosea is doing, what the Lord is doing, is just building a picture of what day-to-day life looks like in Israel. And so verses 7 through 9, we have the sorry state of God's people. In verse 7, it's possible that what Hosea is referencing is, is that there was something that took place in the town of Adam, that they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And he continues on, Gilead, which is a a town moving away from Jerusalem. It's pictured, look at the way it's pictured. It's pictured as a city full of evildoers. That the city, instead of being paved, wouldn't be paved then, but instead of having dust around or dirt around, the city is pictured as if it's got muddy footprints all over it. That it's tracked with blood meaning that the city is just full of those who, who murder one another. I mean, you can just imagine if you've taken a walk in the English countryside, you come back to your house with your wellies on, instead of taking them off, you tramp around your house. What would you do? You'd be getting mud everywhere. The, the picture is the same, except instead of mud, it's blood. That the people are just so murderous and they care so little for their neighbor that it seems as if the street is just painted red. And I think what Hosea, what the Lord is driving at is that this is a normal town in Israel. Because then he moves on. Not only have they broken the covenant, not only have they acted faithlessly, not only are they cities full of evildoers, but then he says, as robbers lie in wait for a man. So priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. And possibly what he's meaning here is that Shechem is is located in the center, and down below it you'd have Bethel, where it was one of the places that Israel would go to sacrifice. And so here the the priests, the priests are are pictured almost like a a, a gang of, of, almost like a, a motorcycle biker gang. 
They, they rove around murdering individuals. Now, whether this is physical murder or the fact that they're dragging people, as it were, to hell with their bad doctrine, we don't know. But nonetheless, these are the priests. These are the religious leaders of the day. So none of these pictures, we, we, have, we have very little historical knowledge outside of Hosea about them, but I think we can rest assured that what the picture that's being painted is this is just the state of God's people. Because you see in verse 10, this culmination, in the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. I, I wonder, right, as I was preparing this and reading about this, Right. Is Hosea just giving us these really bad examples? Like these are the worst examples he could pick? Or does he actually have so many of them that he can just pick a few at random? Because he's already spoken of Bethel, which it means the, the, the house of God. But he refers to it as Beth-Avon, the house of evil. And he speaks of the evil in Gilgal. He speaks of these two mountains, Mizpah and Mount Tabor, in the, the north and the south, as nets and snares that, that drag people down like animals caught in a pit. I mean, it almost seems to me that Hosea is just giving us a geography lesson of evil. The whole land is filled with wickedness. I almost wonder if Hosea would agree with this. If you had a map of Israel and threw a dart at it, you'd hit a place or a town, and it would be full of evil and evildoers. And that's the state of Israel. In many ways, it sounds very relevant today. It, it can feel like the state of the U.S., the U.K., of countries around the world, that they seem to be exulting in wickedness and evil. Evil seems to be the order of the day. And at the beginning of verse 11, you could almost think as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone from the, the city of Jerusalem, of a part of the tribe of Judah, reading this, thinking, yes, Lord, my neighbors are evil. They are wicked. By all means, you should take them down. But at the beginning of verse 11, for you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. For you also, O Judah. And this has been this theme that has been coming up that Judah is going to experience the same things because Judah should be learning from Israel's mistakes, and yet they're not. And you get this picture, really, of, of bad company corrupting. Again, as I was preparing this and thinking about this and thinking about the ways in which the Bible presents to us, the ways in which it seems that when you, when you put a, a believer and an unbeliever together, Generally, it seems that the unbeliever pulls down the believer, whether that's strong friendships or what Paul says for believers not to marry unbelievers, because his point being is that the unbeliever is far more likely to drag the believer down than it is the other way around. Or the book of Proverbs, it warns us on friendships with evildoers and the ways in which this, this gang of evildoers seems to entice this person to run and go off and, and, and engage in all of this wickedness with them. And that this picture of Judah and Israel, Judah should have been, as the, the center of the correct worship, they should have been lifting Israel up to holiness. But instead, Israel is dragging Judah down into wickedness and to judgment. That's certainly something to think for, for our, our, our young people to realize what friendships can do, that the power that they have. 
But I think it's also, uh, uh, it's also a call for us, right? We're not called to leave the world. We're called to be a part of it, but we're called to live in a manner that is holy before a watching world. Really, I think our, our job is in many ways to emulate what Jesus did. Some of my favorite episodes in the Gospels are when Jesus comes to people who are sick and, and ceremonially unclean. I think of the lepers who you're just not supposed to touch them because they're gonna, you're going to contract their holiness. Yet Jesus comes and touches them. And instead of him becoming unholy, they become holy. I think really our call as Christians in this world is to be those who, who really lift others up by being holy and living holy in front of them. And so I think as we, we come and tie all of these things together here at the end, Hosea certainly is warning about true and false repentance. And this is the same thing Jesus would do. Remember the parable of the sower. Jesus speaks of this parable of this man going through and sowing these seeds, and it's the seeds of the gospel. And there's only one of those seeds where the seed actually takes root in the ground and it flourishes and it grows. And this person has truly understood and truly been saved. But Jesus then gives three examples of, of those who have not, of those who have heard the gospel but failed to repent, failed to live a life as a disciple. And so I think Hosea wants, he wants certainly Israel to be thinking long and hard about what true repentance versus false repentance looks like. And from verse 15, if, if, you, if we want to meditate upon this, but true repentance is just simply acknowledging your guilt. Think of the ways in which we sang Psalm 51. David, who's the king of Israel, comes and says, against you, O Lord, I have sinned. And he acknowledges his guilt and finds salvation. Here, Israel is pictured as those going, Lord, please stop. <laughs> We're sorry. We want to have all of these things back. But also Hosea wants to picture for us this pursuit of holiness. Right, this is the problem that Judah is, is experiencing. They aren't pursuing holiness. They're being drugged down and, and eventually, many years later, they themselves will go into exile as well. And Again, as I've been saying, I think this leads us to be thinking through the ways in which holiness actually should be evangelistic. That living lives as Christians out in a world that is hostile. This is, this is the picture that we have in the book of Acts. This is the picture that we have of the, the post-apostolic church, that they lived holy lives, that they were those who cared for widows and orphans, the least of these. They were the ones who stayed when, when plagues came. They were the ones who buried the dead when others wouldn't. They were the ones who cared and brought in others into a new community when they were ostracized and kicked out of theirs that there was a true sense that their treasures were in heaven and they could risk anything because that was true. And so holiness, it's not just about what we do, but it's about what we think, it's about how we act, and it's about ultimately how we love God and love our neighbor. And I, think Ho I think Hosea would be seeing, I mean, think about the state of God's people. They are supposed to be a kingdom of priests, yet the world is watching as God is needing to destroy them, to wipe them off the face of the earth, it seems. And this is the state that they have come. And certainly we can see the ways in which Christianity has failed to do what it's supposed to do. 
And so I would say, brothers and sisters, let us hear these words. We're, we're not immune to being in the same state as Israel. We're not immune to falling to grievous sin. What we're called to do is, is to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, to find our only hope in life and death in him, and to pursue a life of holiness because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so, yes, these words are hard from Hosea 6, but they should also be comforting to us in the way in which the Lord speaks to us. As Jesus said in, in, in Revelation chapter 3, that I discipline those whom are mine, those whom I love. And so let us not neglect these words that Hosea, the Lord is speaking to us. Amen. Let us pray. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K for more. Thank you.